Moms and dads, if you've got children that are five or under and you want to take them back to Trinity Kids, please feel free to do that. And those of you who have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 20. We're at verse 13. Please give your attention now to God's Word as Maggie reads it for us. A reading from Exodus. You shall not murder. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Maggie. All right, how was that for a long reading of Scripture? Well done. Let's pray together. Lord, thou shalt not murder. You command us to not murder. And whenever you give us a negative command, you also command the opposite, which means that we shall love. We shall not be double-tongued. We shall promote life. And Lord, we confess that the implications of the sixth commandment for us today are huge. And so would you help us in our time together, in these very brief moments together, to think well about the implications of the sixth commandment, thou shall not kill, and help us to promote life, because you have given us life, it is yours you have given life to those of us who were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And you command us to promote life, to open our eyes to the gospel this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the state legislature of Pennsylvania wanted to reinstitute capital punishment, the governor of Pennsylvania objected to it on the grounds of the verse that Maggie just read for us. He said, thou shalt not kill, and he vetoed the bill. Do you agree with him? We're going to talk about this and other implications of the sixth commandment today. Are you ready? <laughs> Grab your seatbelts, put them on. We're going to go fast, but we're going to think through these issues with the framework of the gospel. But before we dive into them, right, this is the second sermon on this commandment. Before we dive into them, let's review what we said last week. Last week we said that life and death is God's business. It's God's business, and it's God's business. <laughs> he is in the business of giving life to once was dead, of creating the world in beauty and glory. And we said last week that the term ratzah, which the Hebrew verse, the verse that Maggie read in English for us in Hebrew is lo ratzah. That's it. Two, two Hebrew words. It means no killing. And we said last week that that Hebrew word is something narrower than just kill, the broad statement thou shalt not kill. It's actually narrower than that. But it's broader than thou shalt not murder. And as we look at it today, we're going to think about it in three headings. The context, the controversies, and then we're going to draw some conclusions. The context, the controversy, and we're going to draw conclusions from it. So if you, have a, if you have your sermon outline, please take it and have it before you. Let's look together at the context when you study Scripture, it is always important to remember the context. The Sixth Commandment, like all other commandments, come after the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And the prologue to the Ten Commandments said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. And the prohibition against killing obtains more depth when we read it against the background of Israel's plight in Egypt. Remember, Israel had a king, and this king's name was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, the Pharaohs, had given themselves the right to determine when life and death began and ended. And at Pharaoh's command, all Israelite baby boys were commanded to be killed. Which means that had that genocide played out, Israel would gradually have disappeared. Egypt then would not have been a house of slavery. It would have been what? A house of death. But by liberating Israel from Egypt, God brought life. And he did so by causing life itself to be a sign of grace. Anyone who failed to respect the life of another person, God says, therefore, is failing to respect the grace that God has given his people. Because in God's sight, their liberation from Egypt was for God the work of his grace to bring you out of bondage into life. Even though now they're nestled in the wilderness at Horeb, right under Mount Sinai, and that's where God gives them these commands for how they are to live. Life for Israel, please hear me, was a sign of grace. He freed his people from a planned genocide by Pharaoh. But this life, according to God's word, had a very specific purpose for God. Because all of life, all of life in Israel was for his praising. It was for the extension of his glory, the great liberator of the people of Israel from the dastardly deeds of one Pharaoh. In fact, all of the Old Testament really is brought out of this grand motif of Israel being redeemed from Egypt. And man has a very special privilege throughout his life. And a special privilege, regardless of where you are by, in faith, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, your special privilege is this. You are called to worship and glorify God. Your life is for praising God. Regardless of if you're a believer, your life is for praising God. And if you're not a believer yet, your life is for praising God. And so you see all throughout Scripture where God's name throughout earthly life is expressed as for the purpose of praising God. In Psalm 8, you see this very explicitly. In Psalm 30, verse 9, you hear the psalmist cry out, What profit is my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Preserve my life, O God, because my life is for your praising. And last week we saw two very powerful implications of the sixth commandment. And we saw that out of Genesis chapter 1, we said that there is sanctity for human life because God created human beings in his image and he delights in life. You see that in Genesis chapter 1 when he created the world and he made man the chief of his creation to be his vice regents, to be the ones that were over all creation. And it was very, very good. And the second thing he told us was that it is God's business to determine the patterns and the boundaries and the timings of our life and of our death. You see that, for example, in Acts chapter 17. 
And we summed up these principles of God promoting the sanctity of life because he delights in life, he made us in his image, and of him establishing the boundaries of our life and of our death, of our place in history and of our timing when we will be with him if you're a believer. And we summed it all up by saying that life and death is God's business. Plain enough? That's the context. Israel coming out of bondage to Egypt, commanded to promote life by not killing your neighbor. Now, I said last week that this week we're going to enter into some controversies, and so we're going to take several of them. And so let's dive into them. But before we do, I want you to know that I'm not going to get to all the issues that are implications of the Sixth Commandment. There's just simply not time to do that. And if you want to talk about those, please do so. Please do so in your community groups. This is like the perfect timing to have a community group in light of a sermon like this. But let's keep talking about these things together. The question is, if God is a God of grace, does he allow any situation in which life can be cut short? If he really promotes life, a suffering husband or wife, can you shoot an enemy in a time of war? Can someone take someone else off life support? What is the case in which God allows you to cut life short? When and when does he not allow us to cut life short according to his word? Now, let me say two very, very important things before I dive into these things. Number one, I've already mentioned it. I'm not going to get to all the issues that are involved. In fact, the title of our sermon mentions some issues that I may not have time to talk about. And secondly, please hear me. Most of the time, if not every time we talk about questions of life and death, we live in a political context that has so politicized these issues that it's very hard to separate the implications of the Sixth Commandment from what Scripture teaches. But please hear me. What we need as believers today is not to try to associate your views of when life does or does not end with a particular political party. That is not what Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 begs of us. What it does beg of us is it begs of us to have a biblical framework for know how to be good thinkers to think through these issues. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your political views, indeed even political parties in countries, don't always remain the same. And so it is therefore very important to hear that some of the things we're going to talk about may line up with American political positions, but not necessarily and not completely. And that's not even the point. Are you with me? And there is freedom of conscience in some areas, which I will try to bring to your attention. Is that clear? If we did not live in America, we probably would hear this sermon differently. But because we do, we have to be careful to not let over-politicized topics affect the way that we think as good thinkers about the nature of the gospel and the way that we understand very controversial issues like this. All right, let's jump in. What about self-defense? <laughs> Kids, Jesus says turn the other cheek, right? So when somebody comes into your house, should you turn the other cheek? Can they just take your Wii U, all of your Legos? That would be hard to let them do that, wouldn't it? So where do you go to Scripture? Well, in Exodus chapter 22, in verses 2 and 3, you see a situation where 
Moses says that if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him and he shall surely pay. Now what's going on here? What, what God is telling Moses to communicate to Israel is that if you defend yourself in daylight, if you kill somebody in daylight trying to defend yourself in Israel, you would be guilty of their blood. You would be breaking the sixth commandment. But if this happened at night, you would not be. That sounds so confusing. What? The principle is this. Even in Israel, if you have appeals to preserve life and you choose not to take those appeals. In other words, if there is a way to preserve life, and in Israel, they use day and night as good examples. If you have neighbors to cry out for, if you have people you can ask for, you should do that. You should exhaust your appeals for help in order, even, even when you feel threatened, to save the life of another human being. But if you've exhausted those appeals for help, if you are alone, if there's no other place you can go to, Scripture gave Israel the right to be able to defend themselves. So you see those signs sometimes around Oklahoma countrysides where it says, trespassers shall be shot on sight. You ever seen those? Well, biblically, maybe they ought to say trespassers should be shot at night. <laughs> so I'm not trying to give you like when and when you cannot, you know, um, load your 12 gauge and teach your wife when and when not to shoot. Listen, the principle is simply this. Even in the most dangerous of scenarios for you, in protecting your family, are you still trying to preserve life? And if you have the opportunity to save a life, to divert that attacker or that thief in any way, you should do that rather than take his life. That's all that Scripture gives us. Are you with me on that? The principle is fairly clear. I mean, it makes sense. Life, even in self-defense, should not be taken except when there are no other options for aid. And those situations certainly exist. And in those situations, you do have the right to do that. Now, okay, what about capital punishment? When the legislature of Pennsylvania voted to introduce it, remember I said in the introduction that the, the governor vetoed it on the grounds literally on the grounds of Exodus 20, verse 13. But if you keep reading in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, the holiness code, God sets forth provisions for those who break the commandment. And for those who murder, God commands that they be executed. Now, the institution of capital punishment is not given by God as a deterrent. Because some would argue today, well, listen, capital punishment's not a deterrent. Listen, I, there are argues, arguments for and against it. The issue in, in the Bible was not that God gave capital punishment as a deterrent. He gave it as an act of his justice. What's the biblical rationale? Well, capital punishment was instituted very, very early in the Bible. It was instituted before Jesus. It was instituted before Moses, even. It was instituted even before Abraham goes all the way back to Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, if, if, if by a man, man's blood is shed, then by a man his blood be shed. That is not a prediction. That is not an observation about human nature. 
You will hear people argue that. The structure of the Hebrew is that this is a command. In other words, the Bible says human life is so sacred, so precious, so holy. Human life has so much dignity that if with malice and forethought you wantonly destroy another human being, then you thereby forfeit your own right to life. Now, does that mean that mercy should not be shown? David killed Uriah. Ahab killed Namath. And yet they both lived. How come God's inconsistent? Listen, mercy can be shown and indeed should be shown. When the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus who was caught in adultery, the penalty for the act of adultery was to be stoned to death. And yet what did Jesus say to them? Jesus replied, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And this should not be used to indicate that Jesus was against capital punishment because the context there is he's talking to the Pharisees, isn't he, about their own hypocrisy and their use of the law to justify themselves before God. But Jesus very clearly assumes capital punishment in certain instances. And here he was trying to call out the trick of the Pharisees. And oftentimes when people say, well, Jesus never instituted capital punishment, he's certainly against it. And they use this verse. That's taking the verse completely out of context. It's not what the verse is talking about at all. God has given government the authority to determine when capital punishment is due. You see that, you saw that in Genesis chapter 9. You see that, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 and 14. You see it also in Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read that for you. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You have, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The word that's very important in that is the word not in vain. Eke. To say that it's not in vain means that it's purposeful, that it's necessary, that it's needful. In fact, about five years later, after Paul wrote the book of Romans, in Acts, the very end of the book of Acts, Paul himself lays his case before Caesar, and he himself opens him up for the penalty of his crime. According to what Caesar determines, verse 11 of chapter 25 of Acts, if I then am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. When his neck is on the line, Paul doesn't say, but it's wrong to practice capital punishment. He submits himself to the governing authority. It's interesting, isn't it? But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So boil this down. How should the Christian view the death penalty? What can we say? What can we not say? First, we must remember that God has instituted capital punishment in his word. Therefore, it would be presumptuous, presumptuous for us to think that we could have a higher standard than God himself. The standard applies not only to us, but to God. 
He is perfect. He is holy. And God calls us to have reverence for human life, but not absolute reverence for human life. There are places where government has the authority to take the life of another human being in the most violent of offenses and violent of crimes. Living is for praising. Our life is for God. Now, secondly, we should never rejoice when the death penalty is given. A life is being taken and it's tragic. And you should enter into it slowly, prayerfully, and with tears. Because the death penalty exists because sin exists. And that's indeed something over which we should weep. So believers should not object on biblical grounds that government has no right to execute a perpetrator of the most evil and violent of crime. You may object to the death penalty in this room, and it's okay if you do. You just can't use the Bible to defend that view. It may be your particular position, and that's fine. But it's not because the Bible says you shall not take another life. Does that make sense? Okay. This is why it's very important to think about the gospel in a framework because all of us would say that, okay, somebody would say, well, where does God ever, you know, where does Jesus ever, ever um, offer the death penalty to somebody? Well, there's one example that's pretty good to think about, isn't there? God the Father executed the death penalty on his son. And Jesus took the death penalty for you and for me. And some of us say on the issues of death penalty or of self-defense, we sometimes say, well, listen, God, no, Jesus took the penalty for you. Or what about defense? Jesus never defended himself. Jesus didn't have to defend himself. He's Jesus. But you know who he does defend? He defends those, or who, those who are in his house. John 10 Verse 28, or 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, the Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus protects those who are his. Jesus doesn't have to defend himself, but he defends you. And if you by faith trust in him, Brother, sister, you are in his house. And there is no greater defense than the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you. Do you trust him? If you don't, what defense do you really have? How safe can you really say you are? Indeed, you're not. Your life is vulnerable and it's in jeopardy. Except when you take refuge in Christ, our protector. So, self-defense Capital punishment, how much time do we have? Okay, we've got a little time left. Let's think about a topic that um, is no small topic. What about war? Do you have time to talk about war together? Let's talk about war together. The sword can be used against evil from within, it, within national boundaries, but what about, what about outside of it? Wars in the Old Testament 
were fought by God's command and with his approvals. Wars of Haram, Numbers 21, Deuteronomy 20, Revelation 19, the entire book of Joshua, it seems. The Bible is not pacifist. And yet, Scripture actually says very little, actually says very little about the specific ethics of warfare. What can we see? Well, number one, we know that war is a result of sin. Jesus' own half-brother, James, says in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight. You go to war against one another. When Adolf Hitler's regime was trying systematically to wipe out all of the Jews in the world, the Allies intervened and mass murder was stopped and returned freedom to their lands. Is that right or wrong? War is a result of sin. Second, because of sin, even the gospel will provoke violence among people. And as much as we seek to avoid it as believers, the presence of the gospel in the world will provoke of violence. This is all over the New Testament, for example. Read the book of Revelation, Revelation 11 or 12, chapter 13, chapter 19. There will be persecution for those who honor Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So, war is a result of sin. Even the gospel will provoke persecution. Third, Scripture recognizes that warfare is sometimes necessary in a fallen world. It recognizes that it is sometimes necessary. God has given the sword to civil authorities. And God is the one who enables even the devout warrior to prevail. In Psalm 144, verse 1, it says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Warfare is sometimes necessary. Fourth, perhaps the most powerful argument for the existence of war biblically is that Scripture respects the military vocation. That's good news, isn't it, for those of you who are in the military? John the Baptist told soldiers in Luke chapter 3 not to rob others, but he never told them to leave the military. The Roman centurion tended to be positive role models in the New Testament. And just as we therefore pray for engineers and doctors and lawyers and pastors and teachers and moms and dads, so also we should be praying for those in the military sciences, for those that are in active duty in the military, and for the veterans who have fought in war. Fifth, war should never be entered into, but slowly. Let me say it positively. You should always be slow to go to war. Those who conduct war should not delight in killing others. In fact, God judged Edom because of its lack of compassion in war. And he calls us to go to war slowly only after attempts at peace have failed. Listen to what God's word says in Amos chapter 1. For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he has, pursued, he has pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger 
tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. God requires restraint in war. Deuteronomy 20.10 says, when you go to a city to begin a battle with it, you should offer them terms of peace. And partially on this basis, theologians in history have tried to articulate what we call just war theory. And what is just war theory? Let me just give you some of the principles of just war theory. They are, a war may be started by only a legitimate government, for a legitimate cause, with a legitimate purpose, with consideration of the benefits and the costs, with means proportionate to the offense, and recognizing the difference between civilians and soldiers. Do you see those six? There's more, but those six encapsulate, encapsulate all the principles for what is and what is not considered a just war. So let's, let's, okay, so we're in the river together. Let's wait a little deeper. You want to? You want to? What about these conversations that we're having with countries about nuclear arms? Oh, gosh, he went there, didn't he? Listen, there, there's, there's an old, um, there's a king who lived in the fourth century whose name was Dionysius II, and he had a postman who was named Damocles, and Damocles was his courier. He brought news to him from far-off countries. And Damocles would come and see Dionysius sitting on his throne and praise him. Oh, king, you must live this incredibly blessed life. You have all this luxury. You have servants who serve you. You must be the happiest man in the world. And Dionysius II said, well, Damocles, why don't you and I change places for a day? And so Damocles hops on the throne of Dionysius, and for a day, he rules the land. And by the end of the day, Damocles orders a sword to be hung above the throne by the breadth of one horse hair from the horse's tail. Because Damocles recognized that the power of responsibility of governing a land is like sitting under an incredibly heavy sword dangling by the breadth of one hair. It could come down at any moment's notice with the wrong decision. And Damocles' sword is sometimes like the nuclear crisis, isn't it? Nuclear arms are an incredible deterrent. You can't live without them, but you can't use them, can you? Because the disproportionate damage would be unbelievable. Okay, so community groups, discuss. Listen, there's going to be people that are on a different side of the fence on this question, and that's okay. The point is, the point is that these are very complex issues, and we need to wrestle with them. And we want to be a church that wrestles with these important issues. And being okay if you don't agree, being okay with that, because what you do agree with is the gospel itself. Because at the core of these principles, talking about the implications of the Sixth Commandment, is the gospel upon which we all agree and we all stake our life. And what we're trying to give you is not a place where you can kind of pigeonhole what these views are relative to the country in which you live and the political positions of these parties, but thinking about it in terms of what the gospel allows us to say and to not say in light of redemptive history given to us in holy writ in the Bible. Now, 
Scripture gives special honor to those who seek peace. David was a man after God's own heart. But God would not allow David to build the temple. Why? Because David was a man of war. So he gave it to his son Solomon, whose name means what? Peace. And there was one, a prince of peace, who will come, who says, I will rebuild this temple in three days. And it is Jesus Christ who, when he comes, he will break your plowshares or your pruning hooks into plowshares. He will bring peace to the land. He is the Prince of Peace. And the threats of war will only end when Jesus Christ comes to make all things new. And so, therefore, our role and right and responsibility as those who are made in his image is to promote peace at every turn as you're able. Peace, not power, is the goal. Now, only Jesus can rescue us from war because why? Because the sword of Damocles came down on him. He died so that he might bring us peace in a world of warfare. Now, a few minutes left. Let's take another issue very briefly. Abortion. In Roman antiquity, an unborn child was not legally considered a person. Did you know that? So when Christians brought this new ethic of cherishing a child in their womb, it was so radical to that culture that they didn't know what to do with these Christians. But Christians appealed, yes, appealed to what God wanted, but they also appealed to what was pre-Roman. Because the very earliest days of medical records, for example, when you read the Hippocratic Oath, listen to the, what it originally said. Between the times of the Old Testament and New Testament, right, around 400, between Malachi and Matthew, it says physicians would have to give this vow. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest such counsel. Furthermore, I will not give to a woman any instrument to produce abortion. With purity and with holiness, I will pass, practice life. I'm sorry, will pass life on to others as I'm able and practice my art. Isn't that interesting? It's very early. Christianity supported what Greek doctors inherently knew in practice. They weren't even believers, but they inherently knew it. Something in the process of being born a human being is a human being, as Tertullian once said. A thousand years before the Hippocratic Oath, Psalm 139 said, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Even before Psalms, even in the book of Job, which is perhaps the first or the oldest book ever written in the Bible. Job says in 10, chapter 10, your hands fashioned and made me. Remember that you have made me like clay and you will return me to the dust. You clothed me with skin and you knit me together with bones and sinew. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. In the New Testament, Elizabeth assumed that the baby in her womb was living, didn't she? 
in Luke chapter 1. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, she tells Mary, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Abortion has been an ethical issue since the time medical records began. And Christians in the East and West have been unified throughout history. The practice of elective abortions is breaking the sixth commandment. Now, I had a friend named Angela who went to the doctor recently, and they asked her if they wanted to, um, if she would like to know the DNA of her child through amniocentesis. Some of you in this room would like to know that. And that's okay. Some of you would not like to know that. And you know what? That's okay. Because if you know it, you may be armed with information that challenges you on the sixth commandment, doesn't it? What if this child is born and has severe mental and physical defects? This happened to my wife's brother. Grant and Michelle were given news that there is a 99% chance that the baby that is in her womb will be severely physically handicapped all of her life, mentally disabled. So when you're given that information, what do you do with that? Hmm? Because they were recommended, and they were recommended that they abort that child. And Lauren's brother had the dignity to say, whose life are you worried about inconveniencing? This baby's not an inconvenience. This is our baby. And they chose to preserve and protect that life. And you know what? When baby Eve was born, she was a perfectly healthy little girl. Now, it would be easy for me to twist this into a preacher's hyperbole and say, well, that's going to be the way it is if you just trust Jesus. That's not always the way it is. And sometimes some of you are born with babies that have severe mental and physical handicaps. But you know what? You are called to be able to bless that child with life the best that you're able to do so. And that's also, that's also why when you hear people who give the eugenics argument, which is what this is called, the eugenics argument against abortion or for abortion, you should be able to say that that is a living, breathing being. And God has given you that child in providence. This is not an easy issue, is it? But these issues are brought into our living room because the technology now exists for us to be able, and increasingly so, to determine the characteristics and quality of our children before they're born. This is unique to our situation in time in history, where we have that privilege or we have that responsibility. Now, let me push it a little further. What about, what about, what about a woman like Susan, a friend of mine, who was pregnant, 20 weeks pregnant, and she found out that she had stage 4 breast cancer. Hmm. And they said, you must start chemotherapy now. And if she started that chemotherapy, her baby would not make it. But if she didn't start chemotherapy, she probably wouldn't either. What do you do with that? Now listen, this is the world we live in. And if that situation comes to you, I am not going to tell you to go listen to this sermon. I'm going to hold you 
and I'm going to cry with you. And we're going to beg God to give us wisdom. Because you're, when you're dealing with that situation, you're dealing with percentages, and you need medical wisdom for that. Because the principle stays true. You are promoting life. And you're making the decision on which promotes life. In this case, you're facing death one way or the other, aren't you? It's very difficult. And this is where there is freedom of conscience. Some families in this room would choose to preserve that child and take that chance. Some would preserve the life of the mother. It's very difficult. And we need to be a church that rests on chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, where you have freedom of conscience in those particular areas where Scripture does not specifically speak. And we need to be able to wrestle with these things together. And we need to be able to hold things in tension and be able to maybe not agree on everything. That is okay. Because you have the freedom to make the best decision in that case to promote life. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Now, I know that I just... Um, to sidestep a huge landmine. Maybe I blew my leg off. I don't know. But we need to be a church that's able to wrestle with these issues and not be afraid to talk about them. Because we need to come down on where Scripture says we certainly should act and be very, very careful not to use Scripture to justify positions that actually are not biblical and can therefore be very, very dangerous. All right. For some physicians, um, when women have tubal pregnancies, which means there's a, a baby that um, a zygote forms in the fallopian tubes, that physician, friends, has no other option but to destroy the life of that zygote, that child. Because if he doesn't, they will both die. And, and that's a medical emergency. And there are hospitals in town who, who make doctors sign contracts that you cannot perform abortions at, if you work for this hospital. Elective abortions, that's wonderful. Medical parlance calls a tubal pregnancy, calls it an abortion. It's a medical emergency. But that is not an elective abortion. That's preserving the life of that mother because they're both going to die if nothing is done. Friends, we need to be people who fight for life. And when you think about abortion, the medical argument is the only argument that allows you to begin to have conversations about if you can end the life of a human being. And that argument is never simple. It always comes when you have moral courage, when you have medical wisdom, and when you have legal rights and responsibility because somebody has to make that decision. It's a very difficult decision when you're facing the death of an individual one way or the other. So friends, all these issues of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, we have to always remember that it is Jesus Christ who is the foundation for us thinking about these issues together. Because friends, he defends you and all those who are in his house and he will not let Satan snatch you out of his hand. Jesus 
endured capital punishment for us because he gave his life for us, to free us. And you know what? That system was broken too. And Jesus died by grace. Because it not because you deserved it. But the system that seems unjust to us was called just in the eyes of the Father, and he allowed his son to go to death for us because he's the one who defines justice, and in his love he extended justice himself to us. When it comes to war, God calls us to wage war not on earthly, um, physical, material uh, things. Primarily, he calls us to wage war over sin. Are you doing that? Because the sixth commandment calls us the opposite. It calls us to love life, to be careful with your words, to not kill people with your tongue, to not gossip, to preserve the integrity of human beings in what you say, to not harbor hatred for another human being in your heart. In fact, just before we come to the supper, the call to us is a call to confess your murderous spirit, to confess the sins before the Lord that make you guilty of the sixth commandment. And to look to Jesus Christ, who is the center of the gospel, to hold out hope for us for perfect peace and perfect righteousness. And so, friends, we come together around these conversations centered on the cross of Jesus, who gives us the framework that may or may not fit with your political, particular political views, but it is the framework of the gospel to which the church is called in order to honor, to preserve the integrity of Jesus' holy name the best we can, and to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that is the frequency with which we as his people come to repentance. Are you willing to come to repentance, knowing that your Savior loves you? Let's prepare for that now as we pray. Jesus, would you take these very difficult um, questions that are so highly politicized, and would you help us to think well about them as Christians? Lord, I pray that even there are people in this room who are going to differ on these issues, and I pray, Lord, that we are able to go back to Scripture, and we're able to allow freedom of conscience in areas where Scripture just does not specifically speak, and we are okay with that. And you protect us from our pharisaical tendency to demand an answer one way or the other on every question that comes our way. And Lord, your word is not a handbook of ethics. Your word is a story of your redemptive love for us. And so we cry out to you for wisdom in those particular positions and situations where you don't specifically speak. And we ask that you will unify us under the banner that we are sinners in need of grace. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you will show mercy upon us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.